that shift from building hard skills to soft skills and soft skills really being the unlocker if you desire, not everyone does, to be at a certain level within their career, it is instrumental to where you want to go because it, it, it means that you can get work done with other people. It means you can build relationships. It means that you can have context in everything that you're doing. And um, in that but in that shift, I would say, is a really, really hard one. I found that myself, um, even in this, this second part of my career, and certainly I see that with a lot of, especially, I would say, women. Um, That's Christine Evans, Chief Marketing and Strategy Officer of Headspace Health. Christine retraces her journey from the fashion world to executive marketing roles at leading health-related brands like Fitbit and Headspace Health on this episode of the Leadership Backstory. There are lots of leadership lessons packed into this episode. I'm Peter Barron, and my co-host Brendan Steiner and I learned a lot, and we know you will too, so let's get started. Hey, everyone. I'm Peter Barron. And I'm Brendan Schneider. Yeah, and welcome to the Leadership Backstory. So, Brendan, this is going to be a fun interview. We have uh, Christine Evans on the on the call today. Christine, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. so she, Christine has got an amazing career. Brendan, you have a long relationship with her, so I know that's going to, you know, you'll talk about how you guys met and all the things that happened there. But, Christine, you are now the CMO and Chief Strategy Officer at Headspace, which, you know, fascinating company. I remember listening to podcasts with your founder a couple of years ago yeah. and be like, wow, this is super cool. You're doing all sorts of neat things there. But we're going to get there. But there was a whole journey that you <laughs> took to get to that place. And like, you know, I, I've joked on the, the the pod before that like LinkedIn is my source of truth here. So, <laughs> you know, I'm, I've got it up in front of me again. And fa- fascinatingly enough, like you started in the fashion industry. Is that right? That's right. Um, I My college degree is in textiles and apparel. Um, and so I had a very different college experience in which I learned you know, how to silk paint, how to embroider, how to drape, pattern making, um, kind of this whole, uh, while getting a, a great liberal arts education. Yeah. And um, and I graduated and I was like, oh, I, I guess this is, what's, <laughs> this is what's happening. This is what I'm doing. Um, and so I worked for um, six to seven years or so in New York as a sweater designer for <laughs> a number of the bigger box brands that you might know of. So Ann Taylor Loft, which is a brand part of Ann Taylor um, the, the company, um, what's now called Macy's Merchandising, um, so private label for them. Um, and it was just a, a fascinating experience, you know, my first time living in a big city. So I lived in New York City for about six to seven years again doing that. Um, and, you know, it's a part of my career and of my life that I think was just so instrumental in helping me to figure out uh, certainly who I am, but really what I want to do and what gets me up in the morning. Um and, you know, if I were to kind of put any headline on that, and it's so interesting in the time of the pandemic right now where people are really about reevaluating what they do with their time and how they spend their lives. And I would say with, with that experience, you know, you also don't always have to do what you love. <laughs> um, and sometimes the things that you love need to stay the things that you love. Fifth. Um, and preserving the sanctity of that uh, can be really important. So... Uh, that's yeah, one big headline on that. coming out of that. Well, yeah, no, I'd love to hear more. <laughs> yeah, me too. I've always had an interest in in fashion and design, um, and you know, throughout my life, really have been uh, both interested in in the arts, both both musical, visual, etc. Um, and I like making stuff. You know, I'm just I wouldn't call myself a crafter, but I'm really into like the textiles art still today. And um, 
you know, when you get into the industry of it and you see what happens, which is a really instructive process to go through, right? Um, for example, and I don't know how it is today because it's been, you know, many years since I've been in the industry and I'm sure it moves much more quickly. But at the time, you know, you're really going through the process of a developing a set of products and a set of offerings 12 times a year on a very, very <laughs> you're just creating on a regular basis in a way that's um, time boxed in a way that is, um, process oriented and repetitive and great if you're an early career because you know what it takes from uh, a collaborative standpoint you know everything that goes into like this thing that i'm wearing today yeah. um and and so that part of it i think was was incredibly helpful for me i think as i got through that part of my career a couple things uh became obvious to me one as i looked at uh, the the folks who were in leadership positions with these companies, um, where you sort of step away from the data data design role, right, where you're not actually sitting there sketching something. Um, it the thought of that was just not <laughs> that appealing to me. I love designing, um, and and I'm sure that you know if if you talk to folks who have been in the design world, I think that that career progression can be a really tricky one because you generally go into it because you love doing that thing. Um, and I didn't see myself becoming a creative director. I didn't see myself becoming a VP of design. It just, it, it was not that interesting to me. And so, you know, probably about the fifth year through my career. Um, so I'll, I'll give you a lens into what it's like to sort of create a product. We yeah. would design as design is about three times the amount of product that would go out um, into the store. Um, and when we narrow it down to what we want to produce, we go through a whole, process of working with our our vendors overseas uh working with fit models uh you know that are specifically dot designed with dimensions to be able to, to represent your your buying customer and um i remember there was and it's like so present in my mind so uh, so as a sweater designer i designed a lot of twin sets right for like women who are working and uh this particular twin set was like a july delivery piece and it was white that was made it was made of like a synthetic knit material and i'm gonna try to my best to describe this it was um sort of like cut in at the shoulders and then if you see this neckline that i have here it was crochet all the way around and then there was like a cardigan that went on top that match <laughs> and i remember i spent um along with many of my colleagues we'd sit three hours weekly in these fittings where you know the fit model tries things on and we'd have discussion about how someone would use this product or wear this and uh this was a very controversial <laughs> twin set Fifth. because you know we have a, a target person who's going to where you expect would wear this to work and the question was what happens because her bra strap shows Right. It was like, well, it's like see through here. It's like cut in here. And everyone's like, well, she's going to wear the cardigan. So, like, it doesn't matter. They'd be like, no, she'd wear a strapless ball. And other people say, well, no, like, no one wears a strapless bra. And we just, it's like, I ended up over a two week period with this particular skew talking about this hypothetical woman's bra strap for like hours. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember like being in my apartment, sitting back and I'd be like, this is, I mean, it's an important problem. You know, but but this is not the problem that I actually want to be solving is like a bra strap hypothetical issue. Um, what's so ironic about this and funny is uh, at the time I was living in New York and, you know, you do that thing where you like spend $700 to build some drywall so someone can live in the dining room. That was our living situation. And I was in my room, my doors closed and my, my, one of my roommates who was, uh, worked, uh, 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 in the uh, for a judge out in New Jersey, 
um, during her clerkship. She knocks on my door. She's like, hey, Christine, I have a question. I need your advice on something. I open the door and she goes, do you think it matters that my bra strap's showing? And she's wearing the thing. <laughs> and this is, you know, a year later because, um, you know, it taken time to hit the... And I just looked at her and I was like, you have no idea how long I've talked about this. <laughs> <laughs> did she know you designed that one? No, or was I that... don't think she did. I mean, she knew oh, wow. it was from like, you know, but she, she didn't know. Um, yeah. And so that, that started my journey of like, I know I don't want to be doing this, but I don't know what yeah. I want to do. Um, and so I did all sorts of, you know, I studied for... Um, I don't remember what your, my GRE. Um, I thought my wa- might want to be an architect, and I was like, "Well, that, that probably presents the same set of issues that I'm probably having today." Um, and I ended up taking my GMAT, and uh, I went to business school with no idea what I wanted to do, um, no real business training. And so you're in a, an environment where um, you have a bunch of people who have been like investment bankers and management consultants and like can navigate their way around an Excel spreadsheet with like just the keyboard. And my experience with Excel had been like making perfectly square boxes, <laughs> like making a list. That was it. Uh, and so that was a, a, a real eye opener for me in terms of the skills that I probably needed to build to likely make some type of change. I thought maybe I'd get back into the merchandising side of of the apparel industry and um I, what ended up happening is i ended up falling um really in love with uh healthcare marketing which sounds bananas because it is yeah. literally the complete opposite um in, in so many ways and so um one of the first roles that i took so a couple things i graduated from from business school in 2009 which was like the first year out of the great recession so here i am like a former fashion designer with debt and like no real skills trying to find a a, a job that I couldn't really describe. Um, and so uh, some hustle in there. I took a bunch of either unpaid internships, internships along the way um, and fell into healthcare marketing from there. And I don't say the rest is history. That was a journey from there, but that was a pretty critical point for me in terms of finding meaning in my work. Uh, solving the pro- kind of problems that I love solving. And interestingly enough, I think applying a lot of what I learned in the previous part of my career, which again, I, I believe to be really instrumental to my my personal and professional growth into where I am today. So. What, what drew you to healthcare? Um, and so a couple of things. Uh, my, um, my family, a lot of my family are in healthcare. My brother's a surgeon. Brendan, you know, you remember Jason, my brother. I do, I do. Uh, my brother's a surgeon here. <laughs> Um, at awesome. UW, uh, and my my father was a surgeon, so a lot of uh, yeah. you know medical folk in the family, and I always found it really fascinating, um, just like the the practice of it, right, and the meaning of it. Um, in in you know, as I described in the apparel industry, when you develop a product, you know, it's it's probably months now, but at the time it was like a year to bring a collection kind of out to market, and uh, contrast that with. Uh, so my first few roles were in medical devices where um, you have one product. Uh, it takes you seven to 10 years to bring this thing to market. And the regulatory environment in which you get to operate is like this big yeah. <laughs> as a marketer. Yeah. And that to me, like weirdly, I found just like the most amazing challenge. Like what can you do with this like tiny box? With this time right. frame that you have, you know, again, you know, seven to ten years, maybe if you're lucky, five. Um, and I just found the the challenge of that totally invigorating. 
um, right? And to be able to see and to talk to folks, um, you know, very similar to I used to love on the subway when I lived in New York to be able to see people wearing something that I know I had had a hand in and just wondering what got them to, to do it. Um, and in my early uh, sort of health tech career, I'd spent a lot of time with patients themselves to understand sure. what is it they would want from a product? What would get them to use a, um, you know, uh, an early company I worked for worked on a, a wearable ventilation system for people with COPD, which is a progressive disease. It's not curable. You know, these are people in stage three or four of, um, of a really debilitating condition. And being able to say, like, what would get you to use this out? outside of your house and walk around in a way where you wouldn't feel ashamed, where you would feel comfortable, where it would be easy for you to use. And that type of usability, which is um, practical, but also really emotional in the same way that, you know, picking mm -hmm. something out from a store is and deciding to pull that out of your closet every day is, um, that there was a real connectivity there for me um, on that front. Yeah. There's a real depth. I mean, I'm looking at your, your, their LinkedIn profile. So that was when you were at Breathe and you were doing product marketing and boy, does that like, product marketing, does that just not give you the opportunity to expand what marketing is traditionally considered to be? Like you're you're in at every single phase of development from sizing the market to doing the work that you were just talking about, talking with folks. Like how did that layer on, you know, early on in your career? I'm super curious. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, product marketing in this sort of uh, part two of my career has been foundational um, and, and really the, the uh, I have a real bias towards it. And primarily because it, you're sitting at the intersection, as you put it, Peter, of both creation and communication, which is how do we influence and sort of bring an organization along to really represent what clients need? And then how do we communicate that back up to make sure that people know that this thing is available and that they, they want to buy it? So, um, and, and I accidentally fell into this like a thousand percent, um, primarily because because uh, in business, so in business school, uh, business schools today, I think, you know, have you working in small groups all the time. And, and my role in business school was to make the PowerPoint always <laughs> like that was like my one skill. Um, and so that translated actually like pretty well into the workplace, because um, as I got into product marketing roles, a lot of what you do is actually communication through slides and being able to tell that story in that way. And so that was I'm going to say it was a total fluke. <laughs> <laughs> because it was, but that happened uh, purely, I would say, by happenstance and a lucky accident of just having played that role both academically and then um, sort of transferring that practice skill into my day-to-day -day life. Um, and really being in the early days, uh, both at Brie, but especially at a company called Castlight Health, uh, which is still based in the Bay Area. Uh, when I joined that company, it's about 60 people and uh, one of my jobs to be done was to create and work in partnership with our, our sales team to make sure that they could express what it is that we had, right, which was this ability for employees to go in and shop for healthcare in a price-oriented way, which sadly blows people's mind then and still does today. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but nevertheless, um, you know, getting into that practice of sort of connecting a, a buyer and a consumer need and that communication of that yeah. format was a lot of that early product marketing role, uh, work. And and over time, you know, you build enough expertise in both your product, um, in your customer, uh, in in really the, the business of what it means to bring this uh, product to market. Uh, it, it was quite translatable, I think, into further parts of my career, certainly up a bit now at, at Headspace. So, um, yeah, pr product marketing, I think, um, I think is the, in particular within health tech, but in, technology companies is 
is the basis of connecting great ideas to to business value. Well, I, Brendan, I know you've got a question, but I just have to say, you know, you're you? talking to a skilled product marketer, somebody with a deep foundation when they're talking when they're when they use jobs to be done. Like I'm like, <laughs> yeah. ah, there you go. <laughs> They do. Uh, so, that is brilliant. I love it. Yeah. So here's the question, Christine, before we go further. So people know you're a former student of mine. Now, it should be known that uh, I don't think I ever taught you because you were too smart. You were not in my classes, <laughs> which is, this is a bonus for her. This is definitely speaks highly of you, Christine. But like going back to high school before college, w were some of these things percolating in your mind or what were you thinking back then? Did you have any idea? Um, gosh, that's so. I mean, in theory, I I was like, great, it'd be great to, you know, be a part of a brand. But like, I had no concept of what it meant to really like work in this type of yeah. environment. And again, you know, from a, a family standpoint, I was surrounded. You know, my dad was a physician, was a surgeon, and a physician, and so we had a family business. So that that's really like kind of all I know, and I just had no real practical or even really adjacent to experience of what any of this this means. Which you know we can talk about maybe some of the impacts down down the line of that. But you know, I, I think more than anything, I just uh, I really had no idea <laughs> what yeah, I wanted that's to do. Fair. No, you know, and I went into college. Uh, you know, just very frankly, I applied. I remember early decision to college with the hope that they would just accept me. And that 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 show of of like I will take this role if you take me would would be enough for them to say like yes we'll take you, um, so that was vastly simplified and also um, I don't want to say like I I cut myself short but I I just didn't know and I knew that I loved textiles and art and doing this thing and that I just kind of fell into it and that's you know I say that from a place of like enormous um, privilege right to be able to say well you know if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out. <laughs> all those things right uh um, yeah so I, you have to recognize that that's like a key part of this but i had no idea <laughs> yeah honest, no no, no, no idea. that's yeah that's totally yeah. fair do you always i mean clearly we'll talk more about it uh yeah. you know i've had a ton of success and we haven't talked to each other for years and i get a a real sense of confidence did you have that back in school because i remember you being a very good student, more quiet, right? And you followed rules. Is that fair? As far as, you, that fair? as far as you know, I followed yeah. Please don't. I was the dean for a few years. The less I know, the better. Although I think the statute of limitations was yeah. uh, has passed. Yeah. But like, have you always felt confident? And um, no? Yeah, you're shaking no. your head. Oh sorry. my gosh, no. Um, it, it really has been only with that, I would say, specifically the last 10 years that um, you, you so, so by by nature I am relatively introverted um yeah. uh and I, I get very nervous public speaking um I, I don't love it um yeah. I, I am just not someone who um loves to be on stage I'll go put it that way um but you know I learned a lot I would say um so a couple of things I think you're absolutely right um and I would say through college and certainly through my early years of before I went to business school, very, very quiet. Right. Um, yeah. Not someone who would advocate for myself, not someone who would raise your hand with a new perspective or a new idea, just not not that person. Um, and uh, business school was a real wake-up call because we would have 
these. So what they do is they have a lot of the big consulting firms or big CPG companies. As students are starting to graduate or look for internships, they bring them on campus and they do these networking sessions, which was like was terrifying <laughs> in the world. But I mean, I hated it. Um, I did pursue. I mean, just like the whole thing, yeah. just sucked big time. Uh, and you know, I, I really didn't have, uh, or I don't say have. I had the opportunity, but I'd never really been forced into building that skill of making connections with people that you didn't know in a way where um, you know might have a business outcome or that your your job might be at stake or whatever it might be. And um, and so that was uh, that was very difficult for me, especially you know, as I mentioned, it was it was uh, around the two thousand seven to two thousand nine time period when the job market yeah. was really not great. Right. And so not only <laughs> yeah, do you have yeah, someone yeah. who's like no marketable skills, but also um, like doesn't talk, <laughs> um, and and that becomes tough. Um, and I think what I learned over time, uh, certainly observing a lot of my fellow classmates at Kellogg, <laughs> who had been in these environments, what they had been like. Um, you know, agency, ad agency sort of uh, uh, folks, whether they'd been investment banking is they really learned how to ask questions. And when you get down to it, I think a lot of my uh, quietness comes from a lack of conviction of the thing that I'm going to say being right. Is that this thing I'm going to say be right? Am I going to look stupid? And I think the reality is the best people that I observed would always ask a clarifying question would never apologize for asking that question and used whatever the output was of listening to whatever the response was to inform what was a really well-rounded either response or output or project or whatever it might be. And um, I guess I learned a lot from, you know, there were very specific folks. um, I remember through my business school career, just like fabulous at this. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is this, you know, you know, uh, something that we might want to talk about uh, coming is, is failures. But I do think that a lot of mm-hmm. when I think about small failures, medium failures and bigger failures are just this uh, uh, anxiety around not being right or doing something wrong. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, and sometimes you're just never going to know until you make a mistake either. And you have to be OK with that. Well, that's where all the good stuff comes, yeah. right? Like, you know, you get yeah. that feedback. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe maybe yeah. I go this direction instead of that direction. Yeah. Yeah. The other and thing so, I love so, is... Yeah. And, oh, yeah. It, 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 like, when you're okay with knowing that being publicly wrong can sometimes be okay, uh, it's really freeing. <laughs> it, but right? isn't that also cultural, too? Like, it's depending on the company that you're at, like, if the leadership is setting the bar that, hey, it's okay to make mistakes, like, this is how we're going to learn and grow. Like, yeah. was that part of, you know, the early companies that you were with? Like, how did you how did you gravitate towards that after you left um, business school? Yeah, um, it's such a good question. And um, th- there's sort of two cultural components for me personally, one, which is my upbringing. Um, so I'm I'm Chinese by by background. I was born here in the States. My parents are both um, from Taiwan. And um, so I grew up in a very conservative upbringing of like education is, you know, the most important thing that you can do. And like your test scores matter. And like, it's very binary. And this comes from you yeah. know, those of us, who know, folks who are um, who have immigrated even recently. It's um, the, the pressures are very different in that culture and in society, you know, um, in particularly in the East Asian countries and um and that that translated into my upbringing but doesn't actually translate into work (laughs) right meaning 
Mm-hmm. What I found oftentimes, and I remember early on in my career, a lot of my frustrations were like, I know I'm the best at this. I know I'm so good at this, but like, why can I not either get ahead or like, why am I not getting promoted? Why, right? Why, 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 why? Without ever saying anything about it or like asking the question or getting feedback. Um, and I remember when I quit uh, my, my, uh, my job at Ann Taylor, I'd been there for about two years and it was a wonderful experience on the whole, but I'd become really frustrated because I hadn't been promoted. And I was watching people around me getting promoted and so I quit, found another role. Um, and on my exit interview, I, uh, I, I chatted with, um, her name's Sherry Hershon. I have to forward this to her after this, cause it's always stuck with me, but she was, you know, our executive director of design and she called me and she goes, so quitting for more money you know yada 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 is it because of promotion i'm like yes you know honestly it's all of those things and she just looked at me she's like well did you ever ask for them i said well no she goes all right well if you don't ask like i think definitely not gonna get it such a great and i remember walking out of that conversation like but like it really stuck with me (laughs) and and into this and i I don't know if i've actually told her the story since because we've been in touch periodically um, and the years passed, but like, that always stuck with me. It's like, you just never get, like, if you don't ask, right. And even if you don't feel that confident in asking, or what are the questions you can ask leading up to that question? You know, like right, I've never yeah. done the discovery around me to do that. Um, so of course you're going to feel a little anxious about asking for promotion if you're not sort of taking those steps to get there. So, you know, one of the things that I certainly saw with myself and I see even, especially with women, um, on my team or those that I mentor is, that shift from building hard skills to soft skills and soft skills really being the unlocker if you desire, not everyone does, to be at mm-hmm. a certain level within their career, it is instrumental to where you want to go because it 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 means that you can get work done with other people. It means you can build relationships. It means that you can have context in everything that you're doing. And um and that but in that shift I would say is a really, really hard one. I found that myself, um, even in this this second part of my career, and certainly I see that with a lot of especially I would say women um today. How did you how did you cultivate that for yourself personally? Um practice. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I mean it, it really comes down to just trying things over and over in smaller settings and in bigger settings. Um, I've been lucky, it's so, so fortunate, certainly within the last 10 years of my career, to have people who believed in me probably more than I did myself and really pushed me to be out in front, um, really gave me maybe sometimes unsolicited feedback in a way that I thought was actually like quite healthy for me. Um, and so for, from that standpoint, I would say that a lot of people um, supporting me and rooting for me along the way in ways that I maybe didn't even need. I mean, that's something that I reflect on quite a bit in, in my role now and in kind of in the years out of of that context that I can help provide from just experience of having people had that done for me and um, and, and, take, and then taking those opportunities and not shying away from them, um, you know, is that second step that, that I had to take and I think all of us have to take when, when people make that investment yeah. in you. I love it. Talk about Fitbit. So you, so you in 2014 move over to Fitbit. Was that right around when Fitbit came to market, or had been around earlier? I can't remember. It had been around. It was, you know, just becoming the thing that everybody was getting yeah. for Christmas. Um, and for me, um, it was a really uh, 
what I felt was a pivotal time for me personally in my career because I was getting back to what I felt was uh, like an exciting consumer brand, but within the context of the things that I had started to build a career and that was good at. And at the time, so I had been brought in um, to help grow the B2B side of their business from a marketing perspective. So they had a, a thriving consumer business. And what they had found, um, not so different from, from Headspace, is that companies were calling them up and saying, hey, like, I want to buy like a thousand of these for my employees. Like, right. What can we do? Um, and so, you know, take, taking the signal, I think they made a great investment in bringing in teams and people and leaders, including me, to be able to help uh, build what today um, on under the Google umbrella is Fitbit Health Solutions, of, of which um, some dear friends of mine still still do that. Um, so that was instrumental in being able to, what I think, tie those two pieces together. Something that can, you know, of my background, something that can feel kind of icky <laughs> to, to marketers, uh, which is like healthcare, right? Like, ooh, healthcare. Like, yes, healthcare is very messy. Mm -hmm. It's also important, instrumental what we do and uh, into how we live and thrive as a society. And then there's a consumer brand that people love. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be able to work at a company that was stellar at that, right? And be able to help propel at least that side of the business through, I think, were some really incredible tailwinds that had been built there and is an experience, um, certainly, that I've taken with me in, in my role at Headspace today. I mean, what a transformational product that was. I mean, that was, for, yeah. for me personally, it was the thing that, like, well, first off, I had never been obsessed with steps. And then I became obsessed with steps. Like, okay. I, <laughs> and then I got in a little circle and I started competing with people. I'm like, oh, I'm going to beat that person today. Like, there's no way they're going to beat me. But what it ultimately unlocked for me is the concept of like, all, like I'm more productive when I'm moving. Like, I think clear. Yeah. I when I'm talking to people, like that was just transformational s stuff. And in like, if I looked at it personally, would I draw a line to that to healthcare? Probably not in the moment, but now, like, absolutely. Like, I just. Yeah. What a cool, yeah. what a cool opportunity. Was that the first chance that you had to kind of manage large teams? Like where did, or, or were you managing before then? Um, that was my first opportunity to manage a, a larger, I would say, multidisciplinary team. So I came in in a um, marketing generalist role. So they were like, we need a marketer doing these things. And I said, I think I can do that. Um, and so uh, I came in and, and um, part of my experience, certainly at, at Castlight, which um, at the time that I was there. So just to describe this really quickly so you can understand the transformation of these companies in both cases with Castlight and with Fitbit, I had been with them sort of half of my time as a private company and half of it as a public company. And so that that transformation that you go through in terms of product, in terms of process, in terms of culture, like all of those things is a, a pretty uh, monument, monumental thing to witness. Um, and so uh, I left... Uh, Castlight having just been a part of that type, uh, that transformation as a company. And, um, you know, I think with Fitbit, um, you know, was, was prepared and ready to kind of take those learnings and certainly be able to quickly identify what are, if I'm like, you know, like job interview questions, when you come and your first 90 things, like, what are the first three things you're going to get? And I knew what the first three things that I wanted to get done yeah, yeah. were. I was probably right. <laughs> I thought I was right. Um, and a lot of it was product marketing. That's a bias. Um, the second was to, you know, find and sort of finagle our way to at least experiment with getting a little bit more of a a, um, a scalable demand generation engine. 
Um, and then the third, um, interesting, probably like the, the least important of those three at the time was to kind of build a brand that could be uh, relevant within the healthcare space to what is a pretty conservative buying audience, i.e. like a health plan or health system. Because um, in that case, as, as we found, and I still find today, you know, an amazing consumer brand can be a little bit of a, a double-edged sword uh, within the circumstances. So, you know, it really came down to like in my lived experience of having observed the set cast light, done some of it myself, what are the first three things that I would do? And I had, a, again, just an incredible set of um, people around me and above me who believed in that and who helped me invest in that. And uh, it was just an incredible experience. Yeah. How did managing a large team feel at first? Like, that's, that's so curious how that, 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 that works for folks. Every time we do have one of these interviews, we talk about like the first time that they manage large teams. And it's just interesting yeah. to see what people, what, how people uh, remember that time. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost so jarring that you don't realize how jarring it is until <laughs> after you're, you're done doing it. Um, it, it was, it, honestly, it was like day one, it was just me. And in nine months, it was 20 people. Wow. And, wow. you know, and it just, it, it um, you almost don't have time to think too hard about it. You just have to respond, um, which in many cases can be the downfall of a team if you're not very deliberate also about how you build and invest and um, sort of pace against the business as well. Um, and so, you know, in, in, we're seeing a lot of this today, it's really within the tech environment of, of you know, growth at all costs. And a lot of that comes down to like your investment and in talent and people. And while I don't think that um, I had ever necessarily thought about it in that way, you were always trying to get ahead of what you thought would be happening versus, um, and that's what I would say, I wouldn't say a failure, but like a learning from my perspective is like, well, if I hired this person, then I can get this thing done. And so we'll like justify this team or this budget and then we'll do it versus saying, what are the three small ways that I can show that this is actually scale so that I will build a team so that I will have the program budget so that I will go, um, you know, create this enormous go-to-market strategy and kind of slow the roll on that. So, um, so, so, so with that, I would say, you know, it, certainly I learned a lot about um, better ways to scale teams because ultimately when people feel that they can be successful in a role, when they're really clear about what they're going after, when they're excited about what they're going after, um, and the, the the end in mind is very clear for them, you can build a great team. Um, but if you're operating in an environment where like, oh, let's try this and let's do this, and we think we're going to do this thing, but we're not sure, like yeah. it's it's really jarring. Right. Um, and and I am someone whose um, eyes are always bigger than my stomach. <laughs> uh, if there's anything that I've learned certainly in that role is like slow the role a little bit. Um, that's my bias, yeah. and I I. As I think about building teams, um, and certainly my next level of leadership, always looking for folks who can check me on that. Like, is this someone who um, is more cautious, uh, is more skeptical maybe than I can be, um, and who would be unafraid to tell me that they either think I'm wrong or could be doing Absolutely. it differently? Yeah. How do you? How do you? It's I completely agree. Like getting checked is is just it's a gift, but yeah. In, having folks feel like they can check can sometimes be challenging. Like, how do you uh, nurture that? Um, it's such a good question. I mean, I think you have to model the behavior, you know, first and foremost. 
um, oftentimes well duels actually call out in a positive way someone hey you know like so and so brought this to my attention I didn't even think about it I'm so glad they did thank you right and doing that publicly especially now um, you know and folks everywhere right now are really struggling with sort of like balancing work life while sitting at home and you know have no like real social interaction with people and it's a, a generally tough time right now um and so people can um we are not able to build relationships in that same way that create a sense of psychological safety as automatically as we would if we would be in an in-person environment so you have to expressly and explicitly build those relationships as well as call out and really reward people for questioning bias right for um you know challenging the status quo and recognizing that like and we may not always take the suggestion right but let's recognize the merits of why this came up why it may not happen or why we may save it for the future and i think that gives when people see that over and over again it's quite helpful yeah Uh, oh go ahead brennan yeah sorry christine so when you had mentioned um back when you were designing yeah. And as you would potentially move up the ladder, so to speak, you would get away from designing. Have you found that the same in marketing as you've gone up the ladder? Have you let go of stuff or had to let go of stuff that you miss? Such a good question. Uh, I um, I have, but I think uh, for sure. Um, and I think it's different because... Um, I really loved the aspect of being a creator and design and, and product yeah. marketing for what it's worth is, is not the same. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, and that's and so I, yeah, I actually yeah. find um, that the problems or the things that I get to roll up my sleeves and dig into are just sometimes bigger problems or they're just problems at a different scale. And so I don't, yeah. I, while I miss like things here and there, I generally feel that, um, you know, it's just a different version of the same thing at a different level. So, um, yeah. Um, so that's where I found found fees with that for sure. As you were, uh, you, you transitioned in 2018 to Ginger, and really curious to hear about that experience. But, but like when you think back on that Fitbit experience, what were some of the what were some of the market and sorry, not marketing, but the leadership lessons that you took from that time? Yeah, um, I get a, a lot of those. Uh, so, so one that I can describe is really just this need to be deliberate deliberate and thoughtful about how we grow teams, grow people, grow business. Um, and certainly I think there are some um, things that I probably would have experimented with or done differently that had an impact on both the business and the people in a way that I think I could have been more deliberate about. Events that we threw, you know, right. um, investments that we made, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> Uh, a lot of it, I feel like my learning again, it just comes from like observing other people and, um, you know, my, uh, the, my last manager that I had at Fitbit, um, is a woman named Amy McDonough. Um, and she now leads health solutions under the Google umbrella. She's incredible leader. And, um, at the time this was pre, uh, oh my God, I can't think of the hashtag, but, um, the whole Harvey Weinstein. Uh, oh, me too. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. This is pre-me too. Um, but there's this sort of bubbling element of like, can women be, you know, Sheryl Sandberg's book had just come up. It's like, can yeah. you be successful without being an asshole <laughs> at work? <laughs> and one of the things that that I have learned and continue to learn from Amy through observation is uh, we had a, a nickname for her, which is the Velvet Hammer. 
because she was so pleasant. She's so nice. She's so great. She's so thoughtful. And then, I mean, she knows how to get it done. And she's built the relationships to do that. She's trusted by the right. organization around her. Um, and, you know, to me, it's sort of like you can be kind, um, you can be thoughtful, but you can also be really clear about what needs to happen. Um, and I think she was just a master at doing that and someone that I learned from and have continued to learn from time and time again. Um, it, it, so that's one. Um, the, the third lessons come to more on a macro view um, and I would say is, is still a set of lessons that I'm continuing to learn today is how to function in um, a multi-sided market, right? Which is you have uh, certainly within our healthcare system, a lot of people who consume a service or a product, but don't actually pay for it. And so you have like differential incentives, a lot of people to make happy. Um, and um, CIFIT, I think, was a, a really interesting experience in terms of how to balance, I think, the tensions of what is a B2B2D business in a in healthcare, which is is quite complex. So a lot of, I think, my lessons um, kind of, out of like how you structure teams, how you organize them in such a way where you can really capitalize the most on um, what is an amazing brand, right, in the case of Fitbit, but also um, the technological prowess and expertise of having all this data at hand and what you could do that with that to empower people, consumers and businesses. Yeah. Um, yeah. And take that with me. I hadn't even thought about yeah. the amount of data. Oh my gosh. It must be just, <laughs> must have been a man. Yeah. 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 So you've got these lessons that you've learned. Now you're, you're, this was the first time you've been a CMO. So you're, you're moving over to the CMO role at Ginger. Talk about that. Yeah, because it's been a, it, it's, I'm just the whole journey all the way to Headspace. Like, I'm super curious about all of yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I'd been at Fitbit for some time. We'd been public for about two years. I, um, one of the last things that I did before I left was I worked on a acquisition that they did of a small company called Twine, um, which was based in, in Boston. And, you know, as with public companies, when you do a merger, you have a really small team that can be working on it and you generally have to move fast. And there are very few people who are who are uh, what we call under the tent. And I remember going through that. It was probably like a month long process of how we would communicate or how we would get this together with the small team. And I remember feeling more invigorated than I had in years. Right? I was like, oh, my gosh, like, I love this. Like, this is so like we can move so fast. You know, there's, you know not a ton of process that you you can or have to go through because it's just you know seven people who are, are working on this um and it really solidified for me as i looked for that next role what the challenge i was looking for next was to go back to an earlier stage company again um Castlight was about 60 people when i joined um fitbit was around 200 um when i joined i think Castlight when i left was about 500 fitbit was um 1500 wow. And wow. uh, so I started interviewing for roles in the, um, I, I'm coming up on five years having been in, in this version of a role. And I remember I talked to the small company called, at the time it was called Ginger.io, so Ginger.io. And um, I'd gone outreach from their, at the time, CEO and some other folks to come and talk to us about this role. I was like, I don't even know what this company does. Like I went to the <laughs> website, I was like, I still don't know what they do. Um, but I continued in every conversation that I had, I learned a little bit something more. Um, and so I went from, yeah, kind of interesting, great investors, 
like really smart people here. I still don't know what they do to over the course of literally six months taking on progressive conversations. In every conversation, I'd learn something new. I'd be like, oh my God, like, why does nobody know this? <laughs> and I got to the end of it. I was like, oh my gosh, you know what they need? They need a marketer, which is why we were talking. And and I can actually do that. Yeah. Um, and if, you know, as a marketer, one of your, uh, one of the greatest gifts you can be given is a product that people love and that works. Um, and in this case, they seem to have this in spades in a way that just no one was yet communicating. Um, and so I, I took a leap of faith and took the role. The company had actually been around for about seven years already and had gone through um, uh, multiple pivots and uh, to kind of find the right product market fit. And this was the beginning of, of the journey that um, certainly we've been on now. And at the time we were doing, you know, less than a million in ARR. So it's really, really early. We had a couple of big clients. Um, we uh, and we were really building the plane and flying it at the same time what? for sure. I mean, my my, <laughs> my my paycheck was written by hand. Oh wow! Like it was it was a big change. <laughs> uh, it was a big change. And um, but you know, it speaks to really just the the passion of people and um, what you can get done when you have. Um, like a very mighty small yeah. group of folks who care deeply about what you're doing. And at the time, you know, um, so so uh, the first product was this uh, sort of text-based coaching product. We had five coaches at the time. We didn't offer therapy or psychiatry because that's a whole sort of regulatory process that you have to go through. And uh, at the time, you know, talk space was just becoming a thing, but like people weren't doing telehealth. Right. You weren't being mm -hmm. like, okay, I'm going to like get on a Zoom and talk to my doctor. You're like, that's so weird. Like, what would they be? What would anybody be able if to do? They only knew for me <laughs> on a camera. If they only yeah, knew. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so people, when I tell people we did do that, like, so you like talk with someone about your feelings on a, on a text, like, who is this person? Um, and so, you know, fast forward now, we've, we've been through this confluence of a pandemic, a mental health crisis, not unrelated, you know, economic uncertainty. Um, you know, it, it's amazing to see, I think, the truly global cultural transformation in terms of um, how this category is viewed, the importance of it, people's willingness to engage in that conversation and to do something about it in a way that I certainly couldn't have predicted when I took the role early on at Ginger. But, but I like to think that we were one of many companies who were taking charge and um, giving people the tools and resources to realize that this was something um, that was very important to them. And, and Headspace, right, of course, uh, which was founded actually around the same timeline as Ginger, which, uh, you know, really democratized this concept that people really thought of something as, you know, monks, you know, in the mountains doing and brought it really yeah. to earth. For people in a way that was practical and understandable and fun and delightful right. um and you know again we we merged um about at this point it's about a year and a half ago so about just about a third of my journey at the time at ginger and um you know it's it's pretty amazing to watch the transformation of certainly ginger the legacy company but our our companies as a whole over the last year and a half so I'm super curious about the merger because that's, you know, bringing, how big were, how big were the two companies, uh, personnel wise at the time? Um, I think Headspace was about 250 to 300 folks. Um, Ginger was about 500 and that's primarily because uh, many of the staff are, um, licensed clinicians and behavioral health coaches that are on staff to be able to help serve our members. The 
call it corporate side, was a little bit smaller. Um, we are today around 1,100 people. Oh. Oh. Um, so it's big a big organization. Yeah. Big organization. How did, you know, uh, how similar were the cultures or were, were were they different? And if they were, like, how did you kind of mesh, mesh everything together so that people felt like they belonged? Yeah. Uh, I'll go out and say it's the absolute hardest part yeah. of any merger, I'm sure, as you've heard. Um, even in the best of uh, the best of industrial logic does not make a merger easy. That's what yeah. it comes down to. Um, very similar in terms of mission orientation and um, and of passion, I would say, and that you can't replace that. And so that's been amazing, I think, to witness people coming together in this way. Um, differences were, um, you know, uh, Ginger was a San Francisco-based company, very much, you know, like a Silicon Valley tech company. Um, Headspace based in Santa Monica, uh, um, lots of incredible talent from streaming, entertainment. Um, and so you can imagine just like in that sense, quite quite different in terms of people's backgrounds, um, points of view, um, work that they're doing. Um, and then, you know, if you you imagine like what, what company can you think of where you have people who produce Emmy award winning content and also have therapists, <laughs> yeah. right? Like that yeah. that's the, really the range of folks that we right. have. Yeah. company with just like a, a range of both professional lived experience um and so while the cultures and i think the ethos behind the cultures are very similar i think the, the again jobs should be done but the work is quite different um and being able to communicate in a way that everybody understands about where we're going in terms of our strategy where we want to be as a company our vision uh, means different things to different people um just given how diverse i think the the um the work our workforce is what were some of the things that you did as you, you know, as you started to work on the merger? Um, I mean, it always comes back to values. Always, always people and values. Um, I think, it, you know, it, it is for certain that there will be areas of tension, areas of change where, you know, we had one process that we do this. Yeah. This other team has not. So are, do we continue to just ignore that these two things are really different and can you do them differently or we find a way to collaborate and do those together and those can be tension-fueled conversations many times um there's an enormous tax on the organization when you go through a merger um and again like if you can get back to being putting humans at the center of it both the people that um that we have committed to helping around the world as well as all of us as people ourselves, um, you know, remembering that we we did a merger in the middle of a pandemic yeah. Yeah, <laughs> remotely. Yeah, I, wow, right? Yeah. It's so hard to do. It's not like you can throw like a big right. party and everybody gets together, and that you know you can't you don't have the option of doing any of those things. Um, and so we did some things where, for example, um, so one we spent a lot of time soliciting input from employees on developing our new set of values together. Um, and so we did uh, work groups. We brought, uh, you know, specific cohorts together. We did surveys on this so that when we landed on our set of values, um, they were co-crafted by our employees and by the team. Yeah. Um, and that level of ownership, I think, is incredibly important for people to feel vested that they're not being told what to do, but this is inherently actually who we are and how we're going to operate in this way. Um, and it, I think it helped us tremendously. Right. In terms of being able to, at the end of the day, have 
empathy for one another um, when we need to make changes or when we need to collaborate on something um, and to always assume good intent. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Which, which can be easier said than done. Yeah, it's so easy to lose the human side. Right. But if you focus on that, yeah. it, it can, yeah. can make it, make it a little bit, a little bit easier yeah. for folks. You know, yeah. Christine, we, we love to cap interviews by, and first off, thank you for, thank you for coming on yeah. and sharing your journey. Yeah. It's been thank fascinating. Um, and now that you've now that we've reflected and we've had this conversation, I'm curious. Like, if you could do it all over again, would you walk down the same path, or would you do it differently? Totally. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, I um, I love being able to connect the dots, and is of course it's easier to do in hindsight. But so much I think yeah. of every part of my career, in my life you know, has helped me to learn the things that I know today yeah. and be able to share that, you know, in these conversations and with my team, um, including some of the bigger mistakes I think that they've made or, or um, you know, it just, it's been an incredible learning experience and I, I wouldn't change it. Yeah. Oh, and, and Brandon, before you ask that last question, I, we, we, we got to ask, did you meet John Legend in the Super Bowl ad? <laughs> Yeah, I did not. I did not. Uh, my team did. It yeah. was. It was. Uh, it was the pandemic yeah. when we shot this. So oh, one person right. from my team was able to go. But uh, from what I heard, very gracious. Oh, that's great, Brendan. Back over to back over to you. Sorry, I just had to that's ask because he's from Ohio. That's why. Right? <laughs> totally. It's from Ohio. Um, so, Christine, where can people learn more about you? Where do you want them? Uh, where do you want to send them? Yeah, uh, you know, certainly for me personally, um, LinkedIn is a great way to find me, get in touch with me. Um, I love connecting with folks, uh, you know, from all industry, all walks of life. Uh, I love taking those conversations. So find me on LinkedIn and would love to chat. Awesome. Yeah, thanks, Christine. This was fun for me. You're 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 kicking ass and please continue. <laughs> yeah. It's great. It's so good to see you. Christine. So good to see you. Really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, Christine Evans from Headspace. Thanks again. It was, this was awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Leadership Backstory. Make sure to subscribe from your favorite podcast player and leave us a review if you like what you hear. We appreciate you sharing your feedback with other listeners. Peter Barron and Brendan Schneider host The Leadership Backstory. Catch you on the next episode.